Um, Elijah meets with Ahab, and he says to King Ahab, gather all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah, gather them all together and all the people of Israel, and I'll meet with you on the top of a mount called Mount Carmel, which is in the west of Israel. Um, And there we're going to have it out with each other. And the number of the prophets of Baal and Asherah, there's 450 prophets of Baal, there's 400 prophets of Asherah, so that's 850 prophets, and there's only one of Elijah, one who's going to stand for the Lord. That's That's seriously outnumbered, isn't it? And not only that, is he's going to gather the whole of Israel from all the different tribes are going to meet on the top of the mount. So there's going to be tens of thousands of people there. Tens of thousands of people who also worship Baal. I don't know how many believers turn up. Not many, because there's only 7,000 in Israel. So seriously outnumbered. And Elijah says to the prophets, he says, what we're going to do is we're going to do a test to see who is the real, true, and living God, whether it's Baal or whether it's the Lord God of Israel. We're going to do a test. And this is the test. We're going to have two altars, one for Baal and one for the Lord. And we're going to put a sacrifice on those altars, a bull that's going to be sacrificed on each altar. And each of us are going to pray. You lot, you 450 prophets of Baal, you pray to Baal and you pray that fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And I'll pray, says Elijah, to the Lord God of Israel. And if he sends fire down from heaven and consumes that sacrifice, then we will know which is the true and living God. Do you see the the test? Okay. It's a bold experiment, isn't it, for Elijah to do that. And so we're going to pick up the story of what happens. So everyone agrees to it. And we're going to pick up from verse 25. 1 Kings 18, verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. That's like three hours. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Incredible story, isn't it? A real head-to-head, nowhere to hide, no escape. This is the test. Who is the Lord? Wouldn't we all love to see something like this happen today? Wouldn't it be wonderful if perhaps those in our town, in our culture, who sort of might say to us Christians, how do you know your God is real? How do you know your God even exists? We haven't seen him. Why are you telling us that we should become Christians and all that kind of thing? Wouldn't it be great if then we, maybe I said to us, right, let's go down to South End High Street, set up a wooden spire of, uh, of sticks, and we'll test to see whose is the Lord. And let's say it happened, right? What kind of impact do you think that would have on the town? You might get thousands going, oh my goodness, the Lord is real, the Lord is God. It's a wonderful proof, isn't it, who the living God is. And I wonder, how today could we show, and how we ought to show as a church, who the true and living God is in such an age that we live in with so many different gods, so many different beliefs, all are no beliefs really. Wouldn't it be great if we could say, or how are we Christians going to say, yeah, he, Jesus, is the one and true living God? We'll think about that today. Let's turn and look at this story of Elijah. Elijah has many ups and downs, doesn't he, in his life so far. He's had quiet moments where he's by uh, living in the wilderness. He's had times when he's living in a home of a stranger. But he's also had really high moments of confronting the king, hasn't he? He's had highs and lows. And this one is perhaps the highest of all. And I wonder whether your own life sometimes reflects that whether you've had times of quiet and peace in your life, 
but you've also had times of real challenge and difficulty. And what encourages me about this story is that Elijah being one of the best prophets ever, God still granted him these quieter times to prepare for the difficult times. And if you were, let me encourage you, if you're in a quiet-ish time in your life right now, thank God, but use it perhaps to prepare for some really challenging times. Or maybe you're going through a really challenging time at the moment where you really feel like the world is against you, um, people are attacking your faith, I'm going through um, health issues or difficulties where I just can't cope and I feel like I'm going to be destroyed or whatever. May I also encourage you that the Lord might grant you also times of peace ahead as well. Highs and lows. But the key thing I've learned about Elijah's life is this moment that he faces, how did he get to a place where he was that confident God would do and answer his prayer in such a moment as that? Because it, I, 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 you know, Elijah, I respect him a lot because it was a risky test to put before God, wasn't it? Because it could have gone horribly wrong. Can you imagine that? Right, we're going to gather everyone together and I'm going to pray that God will do this thing. Imagine if it hadn't happened. I wonder if that went through Elijah's mind. What if it doesn't happen? We'll get real egg on your face at that situation. How did he know? Well, can I just encourage us that maybe it's in the quieter times of his life as he day by day faithfully serves the Lord, shows the goodness of God, follows him step by step, day by day, that when it comes to the real pinnacle tough moments, he knows what to do. He knows what to do. A lot of the time I find in our Christian lives, and I'm guilty of this myself from time to time, is that in the quiet moments, we kind of get a bit complacent. We allow bad habits to creep in. We sort of forget about the Lord a little bit. We sort of just get on with our own lives and get distracted. And then the hard moments hit and we just can't deal with it. We don't know what the Lord's doing. But if we follow him day by day, faithful, I surrender all in every day of our lives, maybe then when we get to the big moments, we'll know what God is doing and what to pray. That's my encouragement. Okay, but Elijah is ready. And here is the climactic showdown that he is prepared. How would Elijah turn a whole nation back to God and set them free from Baal? See, he doesn't go round Israel door to door, knocking on each door, trying to persuade every Israelite to come back uh, to the true and living God from Baal worship. Maybe he did do some of that. That's fine. But in this moment, the Bible teaches us he's just going to use one great moment to prove to everyone. And it achieves several things this one moment. A, it turns back all the people back to faithful worship of the Lord. We see that by the end of the story. Secondly, we see all the prophets of Baal destroyed. What a liberating change of government policy that would be. Suddenly, you see everyone turning back and all the enemies of God destroyed in one moment. And thirdly, you see the rain come. After all that's done, so you see the people turn back to God. Baal destroyed and his prophets. And the rain come all in one glorious moment. 
What's this all pointing to? Well, ultimately, I think this story is pointing us to another mountain, another mount, not Carmel, but Calvary. It's pointing to another time where God would do a great sacrifice and bring fire down from heaven before all the gathered people of Israel, before all the pagans and Gentiles who mock, before all the world, God is going to do one thing in one moment to prove to the whole world that he is the true and living God. And it's going to be when he sends his son to the cross and he's going to consume him on that altar Did you notice how Elijah built his altar with stones, 12 stones that represent the nation of Israel? Each tribe of Israel had a name on it, each stone representing. In other words, that altar is there for the benefit of God's people. And so Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, bears his people, the sins of his people. Your name as a believer, Scripture says, is written on the hands of Jesus and hidden in his heart. And he holds you there on that altar on the cross as he is consumed, as he is sacrificed. And that achieves the same three things for us today as it did for the Israelites back at the time of Mount Carmel. Firstly, as we look at the cross, as the world stares properly at Jesus it will turn back the world from its pagan worship to Christ when we see the love of the Lord. When he opens our eyes to see Jesus, we will turn back to him. Secondly, it sets us free from all the false gods of this world, from sin and from all the prophets of Baal and all of that sort of thing. Jesus sets us free because on the cross he defeats the greatest enemy of all, Satan, the devil, but also death. Jesus confronts death on the cross and he defeats the greatest enemy we have to set the people free. Christian, brother and sister, have you experienced the freedom of the cross? Have you experienced it? If you have seen Jesus and come to him, you should start to experience that freedom. I'm not saying you're suddenly perfect or anything like that, but you will experience freedom from sin and all the enemies of fear that you once lived under. And then thirdly, of course, the rain will come. Just as Elijah, as soon as this miracle happens, the rain starts to come. Again, after the cross and through the resurrection at Pentecost, the river of life comes down from heaven, the Holy Spirit. And what was dry ground becomes fruitful and fertile. Again, that is what Mount Calvary does for us. New life, rivers, streams of living water where Once my heart was kind of like that cracked and dry ground. You try and do some work with it, put a few seeds in it and till it. 
nothing much happens. But when you come to Jesus, when you come to the cross, suddenly streams of living water, the rains of heaven come. That is the proof, you see. You see, I'm not sure it would work if I went down to South End and did that miracle. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But we don't need it because we've already got it. The cross of Calvary, Golgotha, the mountain on which God was crucified. If anyone asks you, who, how do we know who the true and living God is? We simply say, it is the one who died for you and rose to new life. That is the test of the Bible. Not, see, all the, see um, the prophets of Baal, now they entered into this agreement, didn't they? And they must have known that Baal could do burn a sacrifice, right? They must, otherwise they would have been foolish to enter into that kind of test. They must have seen Baal do some things. They must know that Baal can do some minor miracles and perform, has a limited amount of power, otherwise they wouldn't have engaged in it. And the Bible says that's true. You see, that the gods of this age do have power, but they only have power to destroy and take. They don't have power to give life and to save. That's the real test of the Bible. Who is the real and true and living God? The one who can save you from death. So Jesus, when he came, he said these words. He said, well, he always warned his followers from saying, don't follow me because of the miracles. That is not the proof. That is not the proof of who I am. The proof of who I am is simply in when Jesus says in John 8, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will know that I am Yahweh. Then you will know that I am God. So Jesus says, the only proof I'm really going to give you is the cross. And if that's not enough for you, you'll never be my follower anyway. But that's where I'm going to set you free. That's where I'm going to defeat all the gods of this age. And that's where the rain is going to come. That's where the rain is going to come. In verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, Elijah says this to the people. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. How long will you waver between two opinions? I think that's the question we all need to answer, both for ourselves and the question we need to put to the world. How long will you waver? See, obviously, maybe the people caught up in their confusion in their lives, maybe they remember the God of Israel, but they've got this new God, Baal, and they're wavering and they don't know what to do. Maybe you could call them agnostics because they don't know. They're undecided. But Elijah says that will not do. It will not do. How long will you waver 
It is a dangerous place to be. Why? Because you're not with the Lord. You're actually just with Baal. Indecision doesn't mean that you are somehow nobly undecided in some neutral ground. The people of God were already engaging in Baal worship. They were already enslaved to him. They were already under a king, already trapped under the systems that they had. If I said to you, I'll just give you an example to finish with. If I said to you, well, obviously I'm a, I'm a vicar of a church. And if I said, well, actually, I'm, I'm still undecided whether I want to be a vicar or an astronaut, right? Sorry, it's a bit of light humor in the middle of a heavy sermon. I am undecided whether I want to be a vicar or an astronaut, okay? I'm going to take some time to think about it. I'm going to waver between those two opinions. Let's say I never really get round to deciding. Which one am I? I'm a vicar, right? If I am undecided, I remain what I already am, yeah? If someone's an agnostic, if someone doesn't yet know that they have surrendered all to Jesus, then you already are what you are, which the Bible says you're a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil. How long will you waver? Elijah will not have it. God will not have it. You're either for him or you are against him. That's what Jesus said. So I know we all here this morning, we've kind of made a choice already, haven't we? We're here. We long to serve the Lord. But it's one thing to sit here and attend. It's another thing to surrender all. By the end of the story, they're like, he is God. He is God. So let's take a moment just to, in our mind's eye, let's travel to Mount Calvary. Let's, in our mind's eye, see our Savior, our Lord, do what no other God would ever do for us. And that's to lay his life down for even his enemies. Let's in our mind's eye see the love of God in the face of Christ. Let's in our mind's eye see him carry our burdens, our guilt, our shame, and our, our folly, and our sinfulness, and our mistakes. And let us see with our mind's eye the wrath of God from heaven consume Christ to the bitter end, to his last bone that would lick up even the stones and the water and everything surrounding it, utterly destroyed was Christ. That all my sin and shame might be gone with him. But then let us in our mind's eye see him rise from the tomb. And may with our mind's eye see the rain fall from heaven. May our hearts open wide this morning as we point and say, this is our God and his name is Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.